So I'm just going to start by thanking everybody, the panelists, as well as all the listeners for listening. I don't know, this is our fourth or fifth Twitter spaces as a compliment to, you know, our, our podcast and YouTube channel. I, I call this the Declaration of Lithium Independence. I have a proclivity for double entendres. And uh, originally I was thinking that these would just be kind of independent analysts. So, and I wanted to get a collection of people who worked for major companies. So that, that was the, the kernel of this idea was uh, if we can get Joe and Daniel as X kind of FMC live end and X, you know, SQM, and then have Ron Mitchell, who is X Tangshi and Talizin, but also independence, you know, we're not tied to, you know, fast markets or, or benchmark, you know, a lot of us are just the cottage industry here in lithium of, you know, people just have been analyzing the industry for a long time and, and have, you know, used it to to, to do other things like you know, Ernie Ortiz has, has been in this space for a long time as, a, as, a, as an analyst. And, and, and Ron has joined as, you know, a company now. So I want this more to be an, an analytical thing than just like promoting, you know, let's say Global Lithium, the, the company, you know, or... Ernie Ortiz is now CEO, has been CEO, but it's now a public company, Lithium Royalty Corp. It's the end of the first half, and it's a good time. We just put published the scoreboard with the first half activity. Uh, we all just came back from the Fast Markets Conference in Las Vegas, which was better attended than any conference than any of us have ever been to. And we've all been going there for five, six, seven or longer years, 1,100 people there up from 650 last year, and uh, which was up from a lot more, you know, the prior year, which was during COVID. So I've asked each of them to kind of like come up with some questions. Rodney has come up with some, but I just want to kind of like set the stage and, and maybe my thought or just it, it's my gut, but it's also supported by some analysis. And Ernie said the same thing to me before we spoke that there's a seasonality to lithium equity performance at times, especially in a bullish market environment when prices of lithium are, are generally strong or, or, or rising. And uh, that seasonality somewhat correlated to commodity you know, lithium prices because lithium prices often go up into you know, the third and fourth quarter or into the new year. And then, kind of slow, you know, around Chinese New Year, et cetera. So, uh, Ernie, we were speaking earlier. If you could just kind of uh, one introduce yourself, but also just give that the commentary. We think the setup for a Q3, Q4 going into January um, should be very good for lithium equities, and there might be some summer, you know, doldrums or, or, or sideways. You don't, you don't know, but like. Those who are paying attention over the course of the summer, it might just be a good time period to accumulate shares. As a reminder, though, nothing we're saying here is financial advice. We always have to say that even though you know we're providing information and this is very much an investor-focused and Twitter spaces, everything here, just do your own research. These are only our opinions. But – I do feel that, you know, a number of us have kind of you know, discussed and we've had podcasts, you know, when is the lithium price going to stop falling? And we, we had Matt Fernley on the podcast, I think, in, in late March or April, thinking that it was about about to bounce. It did bounce a lot, you know, in, in a short period of time. And now it's kind of like floating a bit sideways. Um, one takeaway that I had from the Fast Markets Conference was a few people that I spoke to thought that. Q4 going into Q1 should should definitely be a period of uh, rising prices again. And that's a, definitely a topic that I think we should all kind of like talk about here. But 
Ernie, why don't you just start quickly and talk about what you told me about, like Pilbara and Allchem, just historically, you know, in support of what I'm thinking here about the seasonality of equity returns. Sure. Uh, thanks, Howard. And, and, uh, and hi, everyone. Ernie Ortiz, President and CEO of Lithium Royalty Corp. Uh, so we have 32 royalties diversified across the, across the, the world. Uh, yeah, so as Howard mentioned, just talking about seasonality uh, in the lithium sector, specifically on, on stock performance, uh, we were analyzing just um, some of the key companies in the space. Q1 uh, that we looked at was Allchem, given the, that they've been in, in the space for, for quite a long time. On average, obviously, every single year can have its, its particular skew and, and, and variations. But on average, every single month for the last 10 years has been a positive uh, performance for, for, for Allchem. So uh, to Howard's point, you have seen a fairly good performance uh, out of the key names in the lithium sector. Uh, similarly, some of the best months in the last 10 years for SQM, uh, the best two months uh, for performance have been September and, and October. So uh, you, you, you do see a bit of a second half bias as far as performance for these names. And even if you look at a name like Pilbara Minerals, similar as uh, to Alchem, very big, uh, big and strong performance in the second half of the year. And if we look at just the general kind of lit ETF, uh, of course, some of the weightings there don't uh, really represent the lithium sector as uh, perhaps it could certainly be optimized. But if you look at the performance, I think their worst month tends to be in March with the best month in, in November. So I think uh, looking at historically, you do see stocks uh, in the lithium sector perform better in the second half of the year. Uh, I think that's also predicated on just a seasonality of demand and, and, and curious to get um, everyone else's view on this. But even looking at the seasonality for electric vehicle sales, if you look at the last three years for BYD, roughly 30% of their sales have been in the first half of the year and 70% in the second half. So very big second half waiting for, for sales. And then similar with the broader EV industry in China, I think we're, we're tracking that in the last five years, Roughly about a third the uh, demand has come in the first half of the year and, uh, and uh, the, the two-thirds in, in, the, in the second half of the year. So very big uh, back half waiting. So that's why sometimes we don't like to run rate numbers from May or, or call it April because these are very low demand numbers on a seasonality basis. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, the, the, that, that stock performance is likely tied to just big second half of the years for electric vehicle sales. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see what everyone else thinks. All right, thanks. The other thing, I I don't have any real fundamental data to support, you know, the correlation to kind of Tesla uh, stock performance or news, but the this given the numbers, the blowout numbers that, you know, that they just announced, as well as BYD, and also uh, years in which they launch a new product like Cybertruck. I follow a lot of the Tesla YouTubers and and those who are very active on Twitter, and, and they have talked about, you know, in years of new product launches, Tesla shares, you know, typically do well. So I think lithium equities tend to follow if Tesla is performing well, sometimes with a lag, and uh, in years in which they launch new products, that should be good. So the Cybertruck launch, which is meant to be before the end of this year, uh, could be a further catalyst on top of the, the blowout sales from both Tesla and BYD. Okay, so thanks for that, Ernie. What I want to do is, I mean, maybe go through for all of you, and we could start with Ron Mitchell of Global Lithium, just, to, you know, what were your 
key takeaways from the Fast Markets Conference and, and your recent marketing, not for Global Lithium specifically, but just more broadly industry-wise? Yeah, sure, Howard. Firstly, you know, good morning, good evening to everyone. Well, first and foremost, look, that's, that is the 11th event I've attended and by far and away the most heavily attended event. And with really, really good spread of, you know, not only investors, there was a lot of quite sophisticated institutional funds there, but obviously Japan Inc., um, Korea Inc., China, Europe, a lot of Australians and, of course, a lot of North Americans. So in terms of geographical diversification, probably the best attended event I've, I've, I've attended. The key takeaways really, first and foremost, I think a general consensus now that you know, developing new projects is going to take longer. I've been saying this publicly for an extended period of time. I think permitting and approvals is an enormous challenge for the sector. I think it's it's only going to continue, and that's multiple jurisdictions. Even those jurisdictions that I think have had um, incredible performance in, in recent times are going to be challenged going forward. So, And it's not just permitting approvals for you know, project proppers, so mines and, and processing of beneficiation facilities. It's also the, the actual infrastructure itself, the roads and rail networks to get products to market. So that's that's a bit of a bottleneck I see being challenged. I think most companies now have acknowledged that and are sort of really ramping up their approvals team. From a demand perspective, probably another key takeaway is, yes, EV diversification is growing, but the big one was energy storage, and that probably, that's a market I've always thought had potential, but certainly a market that I think is going to grow a lot stronger than what a lot of people had anticipated, and certainly probably something I need my analysts to look at a lot more sharper going forward. But look, the, the mood in the room and all the meetings, and it was a bit like speed dating 101 for, for most companies, certainly anyone with a lithium project would have felt the same. A lot of desperation out there by the end users, a genuine concern and a genuine, I think, recognition that, you know, the days of the past whereby lithium juniors would just take all the risk in terms of developing assets, well, that clearly hasn't worked. There's been a handful of projects that have been able to get 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 through development into production, but but very few on a global perspective. So I think a recognition within the supply chain that they need to step up and and, and assist in terms of de-risking from a financial perspective. So that's probably the key ones for me, How? Okay, great. Thank you, um, Joe Joe Lowry. What what were your takeaways? Main takeaways? Well, I really would distill it down to kind of a gold rush atmosphere. It was the first time I'd ever gone to that conference where there were more people I didn't recognize than I recognized. I think there's more myths out there about lithium than ever, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I think lithium is making the transition from bit player to uh, mainstream gradually, and I think that's just some of the growing pains you go through. I spent most of my time in meetings. I, I wasn't in the hall a lot, but I think I, from some of the more important players, what I was hearing is there is an optimism about price that wasn't there when I was at BMO in March. Okay, great. Daniel? Yeah, not, not too many things to add. Uh, Maybe maybe to point out that true that we started to see a lot of new faces, and 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 particularly speaking, for example, of oil and gas, they were there. They were not as quiet as they used to be, 
bankers. Uh, there was a big crew of, of different investment banks at the conference, which was, I, to my memory, it was the first time I saw so many. Also noticeable, and especially if I look back uh, in time, how many Australians were there. This used not to, uh, in the past, this was not the case, talking six, eight years ago. So Australia is really, is really taking over the lithium world. And this is evidence because of the, of the amount of, of production we have got in Australia today and what is coming. I would also say, yes, there's a general atmosphere of optimism on, on, on lithium projects, lithium producers, of concern on the side of, of suppliers. And by the way, OEMs, there were also plenty of OEMs there, which, uh, which, which is so, um, I mean, they're starting to go attend all these conferences, but this time they were all very active. So, uh, yes, uh, optimism on, on, on lithium outlook uh, from suppliers and projects, uh, certain concerns and, and on, on, on consumers' side. So, yeah, a, a different atmosphere from, from what we have seen uh, in the past and amazing amount of people. How long have you been going to this conference, Daniel? What is this? Uh, 10, uh, yeah, 13 years now. 13, no? 13 like years. Okay, great. And Rodney, you shared some thoughts uh, by video and on LinkedIn, but uh, for those who may not have seen that, do, do you want to just summarize that and add anything more? Sure. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the points uh, I'd reiterate, but uh, the ones that, that stand out is probably the first one is, you know, Brazil's lithium star is definitely rising. I think that there are some interesting and potentially large deposits following on from, from Sigma. The one thing that's interesting is you keep hearing from the incumbents and from the guys co-hosting here is what is the depth of lithium skills in the industry? You know, how much is there to go around? And yet we seem to have a mass oversupply of new lithium companies. So each investor's got to work out for themselves what they need to look out for. But I'd say I don't, I no longer agree with the mantra, you know, everything's got to get built. I think that a lot of new companies have popped up. And I think less than 25% of the exploration companies on our Arca Equity scoreboard will be developed because they aren't the skills, they're not going to get the permitting. And quite frankly, you know, mediocre deposits are, are popping up. People are just pegging. And neurology has is, is become a, a high science in lithium. So I think there are going to be disappointments. There are, of course, going to be great successes. But unless something has all of the characteristics that attract either an existing incumbent or a new player coming into the market, there's a, there's a fairly high chance that it'll get overlooked and it'll, it'll struggle to find the skills and the money to get built. And then I'd say lastly – you know, Ron mentioned, touched on it briefly, the ESS, I put in my post, I'm going to stick my neck out and say a terawatt hour by 2030 or sooner. I th I'm hearing of triple digit gigawatt hour projects in China that are going below the radar. And I think that, you know, as EVs can take so much of the capacity that's, that's running ahead, I think the ESS will will take up quite a lot of the slack and it's becoming a market on its own with its own specific, you know, uh, cell chains. And uh, like we discussed with, with Iola from Motion, So I think that that market is, 
going to be way ahead of, of what people are forecasting. And there will be hopefully the capacity to to fill that. But uh, yeah, I don't know what the split will be between sodium iron and lithium iron in that market. But I think LFP lithium iron is is going to have a, a a big share. And if you know we we don't have to forecast out to mid twenty thirties or twenty forty because some of us <laughs> won't even be around anymore. But uh, certainly to twenty thirty. I think that lithium iron will dominate and that's going to be a meaningful uh, demand component in the industry. Okay, great. I'll just add some of my takeaways. I, I, I presented there, which was, and I used that as a bit of a retrospective because it was the 15th anniversary of the, of this conference. So I just, I kind of broke down, uh, we're in lithium 3.0, you know, the cycles, we, we had the boom period from like the, the, the initial one from 2009 to 2012, then a bust, and then we had 2016 to 2018. And now kind of since battery day, you know, we've been in lithium 3.0 and the scoreboard has uh, grown enormously. I remember the lithium 2.0, you know, the Kidmans of the world, the Alturas and Pilbara and the ups and downs there, the, 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 it was much more manageable to kind of keep track of what was out there. But now you, you mentioned, Daniel, there was a lot of Australians there. Yes, that's because the Australians are producing, but there's also a ton of Australians who are you know, pegging ground in, in Canada. And there were some site visits. I think there was a Lithium America site visit, um, but there were some other visits after the conference, I think, you know, to North American Lithium and, and, and a few others. So a lot of uh, travel after the conference as a result of that. But on the scoreboard, there's been so we say that there's within the structural shortage of lithium, which we all agree there are no bears among the people here. Uh, so we are all biased. I do want to talk a little bit about some of those who are bearish out there and and kind of what their thesis are and and why we disagree. But you know, but the, within that structural deficit, there, there is an oversupply of lithium investment opportunities. So you can't just throw a dart at the RK Equity scoreboard anymore and, and just think that everything is going to go up. And that probably wasn't true even you know a few years ago. But it's very much a stock picker's market. But if you look at the performance of you know what, what's rising, and you know Hard Rock, you know is 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 moving its way up a, a lot compared to other types, you know, brine, deal. I, I break things down into, into four categories. There's hard rock, conventional hard rock, conventional brine, you know, and then there's alternative brine, which need a DLE, you know, and then there's clay. And the hard rock stories in the Brazil names that you mentioned, so Latin resources have risen a lot. Atlas has risen a lot, you know, given the, the you know, the shine, you know, on Sigma, and you've also had, you know, Sigma's obviously for sale, but Liontown has received a very big bid from Albemarle. But even in a smaller way, you know, Albemarle just bought for $30 million from Lithium Power, you know, a, a project. You know, they spent $40 million on a drive-in movie <laughs> theater in, um, you know, in Carolina, but also SQM has made an investment in Azure Minerals, you know, so you're, you're seeing even the incumbents have, have largely been focused on, you know, on hard rock and it's reflective kind of like on the, you know, on the on the, the scoreboard here. Ernie, we were talking about your the makeup of your 32 royalties. Those down, do you have any how are those broken down in, in those four categories that I just discussed? 
Yeah, I'd say the, the vast majority of our royalties are on hard rock uh, spodumene projects. We have two brines, two clays, uh, one non-lithium royalty in the silica quartz space to play the silicon metal and semiconductor and silicon um, uh, metal angle. But uh, yeah, overall, overall, I would say the major- the vast majority of our exposure is to hard rock and uh, speaking to kind of uh, your scoreboard and we were talking earlier we have seen that hard rock names have outperformed this year and i think uh, we've seen that the market has been rewarding names that can that can really speak to scale whether that's the strike length uh, with depth uh, or so forth Um, i think in some ways patriot uh, has been a good example of how uh, now investors want to see very strong widths for uh, prospective projects. But to your point on, on performance, uh, looking at some of the key kind of hard rock projects like Latin's up 250% this year, Azure's up 500%, uh, Delta Lithium's up 93%, Atlas is up 200%. And all of these projects have shown um, the ability to, uh, to have scale and uh, have very large widths. I mean, Azure has a 100 meter uh, width potential uh, as well as the SQM partnership. Uh, Unithera has had widths of over 50 meters and with lots of strike length uh, on on the horizon. Uh, Another key kind of performance attribute that we've noticed is that the ASX, while it's more volatile, uh, ASX listed names tend to have uh, a a better valuation compared to other uh, listed exchanges, whether it's the TSX or uh, in the UK, Europe, and so forth. So uh, I think, uh, I guess, piggybacking on our comment, about many Australians at the Fast Markets Conference. I would say it's also given kind of that they're the largest, I guess, feedstock producer in the world. It does seem that they're also a bit of a head of the curve as far as understanding and analyzing these types of opportunities uh, because the, it, there is a, a premium to uh, some ASX-listed names, especially the ones that can uh, show that they can have scale and, and very strong uh, strike lengths and widths. Okay. Like I've noticed every six months or every 12 months or so within the lithium space, there, there are, uh, you know, micro narratives or, or narratives within the lithium. Like, so DLE stories were hot for, I don't know, a, a couple of years kind of came out of nowhere. Clay was very hot, you know, post battery day following Elon Musk comment. I think, I mean, Lithium America's clay opportunity was hot. I don't know that it's ever really translated to some of the other clay names or sediment names. So do we see a continuation of this hard rock theme or, you know, there was a lot of activity in Australian Brian M&A not that long ago, right? You know, so you had Ganfeng made a big acquisition. Rio made a big acquisition. Lithium America's... And there's one other one I'm forgetting. Is there an opportunity? Are like, you know, Argentine brine, you know, or DLE plays, you know, oversold at this point? I know, Dan- Daniel, you're on the board of Galan and, and Rodney and I, you know, have a good relationship with JP as well. And we think that stock is not fully appreciated, but like it just it does seem that, that there's been a, a bit of a shift. And might that change? Might we all be like talking enthusiastically about Argentina, you know, and conventional brines or DLE brines, you know, is now a good time to pick up, you know, Vulcan or, or, or Lake? Yeah, I, I think brine has to perform before you see a, a big change. And, you know, people are watching what happens with Kachari. I mean, Argentina has been dead in the water for five years production wise. So I think you got to see the, 
see a real change in that. And it's going to take some time. And the DLE stories, just about everybody that's looking at it has to build a demo plant from pilot to demo to commercial. So DLE is probably, you know, it depends on what your time horizon is, but uh, DLE is going to take a while. And I was fortunate enough to go to Australia last November and uh, I picked up Red Dirt, now Delta, Azure, Patriot, and Latin when I was there just based on traveling around with those guys, the different things I spoke at. And uh, I don't know, I, I think it's probably for a while still Hard Rock's day. Hard Rock has, has a beauty that it is a rock, a mind that doesn't move. And that makes makes from a process point of view hard rock easier, easier to predict, easier to control. Brian's certainly more complex, and and therefore the the know how of how to to operate, how to control and predict what is going to be fed into into the concentration is a is a big challenge. It is true that not significant new projects on, on the Brian's in the Brian space have appeared lately. But we are going to see now a wave of projects uh, coming online in Argentina. Some of them will work nicely. Some will have troubles. But but at the end of the day, brines are low cost. That is a very important element also to consider. So it, it will be a space in which clearly hard rock is going to dominate. Hard rock resources are more abundant, are more easy to, to develop. And brines will have a limitation in terms of the amount of salt which are out there, there are not so many salt lakes available to, to be developed at, the, at this. So, um, but but the, this, therefore the scale of brine production is probably limited to salt lakes which today are dead. and 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 it's le there's less of would be any big brine resource. Argentina, um, Chile, Bolivia are available in their development uh, and, and in the case of Bolivia rely on the elite which need to be proved themselves yet. Well, Daniel, you, you guys at Galan are the, the hard rock of brine though. I mean, liquid spodumene is a great concept. So there's, there's more than one way to skin the cat. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Argentina will have in the, in the, in the next five, six years, probably around 10, projects operating, all of them concentrating lithium uh, in the form of lithium chloride and then refining it into, uh, into lithium carbonate or converting it into lithium carbonate. So at Galan, yes, our bet there is that we are going to produce lithium chloride, concentrate, highly concentrate, higher than, uh, than, than the rest of the Argentinian projects have. And that's a product which can be shipped all over the world. We did it at SQM uh, for years, for 10 years, we did ship lithium or it concentrates to, to China at a, at a very convenient uh, conditions. And that's what we are betting that we'll be able to replicate with Galan to, to, to get our lithium chloride um, sold within the existing uh, pool of projects which, which are there in Argentina, or alternatively to get it all produced into lithium carbonate. It's a concept which, in which we, we think there will be idle capacity to, to convert and therefore the opportunity will be there. And, and, and the fact that idle capacity will be there to convert is because 
concentrating brine is a big challenge. It's a difficult. It's difficult. It's not easy. And we have seen in the past uh, this. Uh, Orocobra has was, was a good example of that, and we'll probably see very similar situations with new projects coming up. Okay. Great. I, I, there's a lot of projects that, that, that Joe, I saw your presentation, I think in, I don't know if it was in November or, or some other time, the, the Tribeca one where you, you put up um, a slide of all the projects in Argentina and, and, and there's, I don't know, there's like 50, right? You know, and, and some of these have like significant backers like, you know, Aramet or, or actually Aramet partnered with the Chinese, but now um, they're asking for Glencore to help finance it as well. Um, that was a little bit, uh, I thought that was a little bit unusual. Um, you know, Rio is obviously making some investments there. Is there, is there any, like, do, do you see in the second half of this decade that all of these projects, um, collectively will, will there be some sort of like very significant increase in supply as a result of all of these groups? Um, or is it really just, you know, some will work, some won't and, and we shouldn't really worry about about that from a, a very significant kind of game-changing amount of supply coming from all, all some of these bigger players that are coming in and financing the projects. I think it's just the both. I think some work, some don't. But I think there will be significant supply. It's just taking longer than, you know, in 2016, I was talking about Argentina, you know, catching up with Chile sooner rather than later. I still think they will. I just think it's, uh, I was wrong on the timing. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, as Daniel said, it's just quicker to bring hard rock on, but ultimately anybody in the brine business is going to have a lower cost than the average hard rock. That is an unassailable fact. Only green bushes beats the garden variety brine project in hydroxide and they still don't beat any of them in carbonate. So, um, you know, when DLE comes in, the cost structure is going to be different. I'm talking about conventional pond brine right now. Uh, and then we'll, we'll see what happens with DLE. But, uh, I, just hearkening back to the fast markets conference though, I had four people come up to me. I had never met that said they had smack over projects. And I'm not talking about Exxon and Standard. And these were newbies. And it's just that's why it just seemed gold, like the gold rush to me that, uh, you know, all that's predicated on working DLE. Right. I, I want to uh, I, I, there's all sorts of stuff we can kind of talk about. Um, and that's one. Um but like Bolivia has been in the news with some major announcements from Chinese investments and, and then Ernie flagged this like Emirates and, and British lithium. I think a few months ago there was another Emirates project or maybe it was an Aramid project. I forget just like out of nowhere um, someone announced, you know, a big resource, um, you know, it's still at piloting stage. So this is still going to be many years in the future, but just like, there's a fair bit happening, like let's say in the private space, that uh, they're not ASX listed or, or TSX listed. And um, uh, Ernie, you're the one who flagged for me this like Emirates British Lithium, and, and you're tracking pretty much every project everywhere. Like you're the one investor, you know, one institutional investor, you know, on this. So you're probably shown 
every opportunity. What what's your sense of um, these? You know, let's say unconventional projects or projects that are a bit off of our radar that um, uh, you, you know make something that we're we're going to need to worry about. And also, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Bolivia? Because everyone knows there's a ton of lithium in Bolivia, and the magnesium problem is not necessarily such a problem based on advancements in kind of DLE technology. Uh, so, what, what do you think on you know the, the, the off the public market? radar uh you know projects yeah sure so uh i i second kind of joe's comments about a bit of a gold rush and uh, seeing new entrants into space i think immers is a good example uh developed global recently with essential metals is another good example uh but yeah i think on on Emirates, uh, they're i think a three billion dollar company uh listed in france uh mostly in the ceramic space i think that's their key kind of bread and butter and they just acquired uh, a portion of the British lithium asset in, in the UK, um, but it is on, on the lower uh, grade side. So I think it's 160 million ton mineral resource at 0.54% lithium oxide. So uh, And then they do uh, admit that it, it requires uh, some kind of bespoke new technology to, to process it. Uh, it is going to a lithium mica, so it's not a traditional uh, spodumene hard rock project. So uh, w- I guess we are tracking these, and I think we're of the view that these projects and technologies are going to take uh, a very long time. It, it's uh, if if while well, hard rock is e- easier to ramp up, it's, it can still be be difficult. And uh, second that with with brine and these certainly new technologies that they're trying to get into lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate, uh, I think it's going to be hard to kind of meet the specifications, especially. Operating in uh, in Western Europe, uh, we've all seen what's happened with uh, Savannah. I guess they they progressed it more recently, but uh, it took them over five to six years to uh, to get uh, an, an operating permit. So uh, it, it it does take a significantly longer period of time in in, in certain jurisdictions. Uh, that's why we, we focused on areas like Australia, Brazil, Canada, which it can be a lot faster uh, to get things done. So uh, yeah, I think we're of the view that there's still a lot of, wor- of work to be done. And technologies to prove uh, for these to, to, uh, for these to work. Uh, so we're we're just monitoring it for now. Uh, we're still going to be investing in our traditional uh, hard rock space. And as far as uh, Bolivia, I I'd probably defer uh, to Daniel as uh, he's probably a lot more closer to it. But yeah, I think on, on Bolivia, I think similar to um, what I just said. And I think the rule of law is a big concern for us, especially as a royalty investor. We like to have our royalties registered on title. Uh, perpetual investment. So uh, I think w- we're focused predominantly on OECD countries. Um, the biggest investments have been in Canada, Australia, and and, and so forth. So uh, from a rule of law standpoint, uh, we like to stay closer to home. And uh, so, so some of the deposits in Bolivia, too, as, as you said, their impurity profile is not as robust as, say, some things in Argentina or, or in Chile. So I think for now, on the brine side, we'll, we'll likely limit our investments to Argentina. Dan, you want to say anything, or or Joe, about the recent announcements in Bolivia? Yeah, my first week in the industry was November 1990, and I was working for what is now Livent. They had just gotten run out of Bolivia. Basically, they had tried to do a deal there, and they kept changing the the tax laws. And if you go back, you can you can every era from 1990 on Bolivia has talked and yes, you can't be always mired in the past, but 
Um, I don't think this time it's going to be much different except for the, the prices there to uh, help prop them up. But uh, I think it's a tough go. I think it's still a tough brine. I think it's a, a huge but non-homogeneous resource that has processing difficulties. You have the infrastructure and you have the politics. So uh, I think in 2030, Bolivia is producing 20,000 tons max. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with, with, with Joe in general. I, I think Bolivia's main problem is that there's not a consensus politically with indigenous communities of how lithium resources need to be managed, how the profits are going to be split. And, 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 and the risk is always that, that with the change of government, policies change, and, and therefore the, the risk of investing in Bolivia is, is high, uh, if, if you get it ever moving. Huh? Now, we see significant amount of Chinese investment there. Um, maybe Chinese uh, companies are, are, can maneuver in a, in a better way. They will certainly also be, be supported by... By, um, by by the embassy of, Boli- of 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 China in Bolivia uh, at a political level, the, the the influence China can exercise on a country like Bolivia, and for that sake, also any South American country is big because of of the amount of re- and, uh, natural resources they, they they raw materials they buy from these countries. So um, yeah, but yet it it will be difficult for Bolivia to to exploit. The other area, uh, going back to, to what, uh, what we talked earlier, with, which which is interesting to follow, and uh, and I had a very enlightening conversation with Rodney in, in Las Vegas, was was Africa. Africa to me is the biggest uh, sort of say uncertainty because basically we we know we don't know. It's Chinese companies which are active there to a great extent. I, I, if I would have to put bets on, on where more volume is going to come from, unforeseen volume is going to come from, it is Africa. Rodney put that down in Las Vegas, but it, maybe it's interesting, Rodney, for you to share that, that view as well. Huh? Yeah, I think uh, Daniel and I had a good conversation, and it's interesting listening to Joe and Daniel on, on Bolivia. In my experience, um, in certain countries in Africa, I won't paint them all, is they'll let you come in and take the risk and then if it works out, they'll move the goalposts on return and implement super taxes and so on. And if it doesn't work out, it's for your account. So it's, uh, you know, it can be a tough environment to work on. And then like you're seeing now, the, the, the requirement to beneficiate in country when you know, somewhere like Zimbabwe, you know, used to get its power from South Africa and South Africa is in heavy load shedding. So Zimbabwe is often without power for, I'm told, can be as much as 18 plus hours a day. So that's a big ask to make that requirement. So again, resources are there. The question is, I guess, you know, and maybe uh, Ron can, can comment on this is, um, if we are seeing so many new lithium companies and so many new hard rock, will the world you know, necessarily be reliant on tougher jurisdictions? There could be politics, I guess. China might be. But if you're finding it all over and you know, it's available, will 
will challenging political and infrastructure challenged countries, you know, be producers be as uh, required in the future as, you know, they are probably now? Ron? Yeah, yeah, Ronnie. I mean, that's a really, really good point. And, and I guess what a lot of the sell side analysts are missing is, and you mentioned it, they were the infrastructure. There's a lot of projects here and time is of the essence. Speed to market is of the absolute essence. And whilst um, I acknowledge with the high pricing environment we've experienced over the last sort of couple of years, there's been a lot of uh, new discoveries, a lot of flag flying. Um, but in my honest opinion, I think Joe mentioned this earlier, very few of these projects are actually going to come into development. Now, whether that's because of grade um, or other technical metallurgical challenges around the specific ore body, but most importantly is, is, is the infrastructure piece. I mean, to build a new road or a rail line, to be able to get, we're talking in the coast of Spodgerman Concentrate, you know, significant movement of, of, of tonnes to, 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 to extract the lithium units. It's a, it's a massive challenge and one that I think, um, honestly speaking, the market has probably underestimated. And I know through my own experience going through the permitting and approvals process in Western Australia and, and where we've got it pretty good as far as having a, a well-governed, technically sound um, uh, process in terms of approvals, it still takes time. Now, you roll out these challenges in some of the other jurisdictions where there has been discoveries. Um, I, I'm just not as bullish on the supply side. And whilst, yes, the, there are a lot of projects out there, in my view, the, the delay in getting these projects to market is going to be the overarching challenge for this industry and this sector, and ultimately for, for electrification. So it's going to take a collective effort. I think governments are going to need to intervene at some point. They can't just allow companies to go it alone, like they have in, in, in so many jurisdictions. I, I think that interve intervention piece is, is going to be critical. And I'd like to hear from some of the other panellists on, on what, how they consider how government can play a role because this is an energy transition and the last major energy transition we experienced was, was more than two generations ago. Now, it, these things take decades to play out. So whilst it's still early stages, government needs to, to provide a runway in which companies can invest with confidence. I'll, I'll chime in. I mean, the US is under Biden has made major moves. There's a, a very good piece in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, I read yesterday, I was planning to tweet you know, about Jigger Shah and how he had $400 billion, you know, that's being deployed, some of which to, you know, our sector. But there's, you know, there's risk, there's, you know, Solyndra PTSD. And uh, we're going to have an election, you know, next year. So we'll see how, how that how that goes, but I mean, he, he he's focused on climate, but some of the investments that he's making, he, he recognizes there's geopolitical you know consideration on you know uh, in our sector, but he doesn't have a mandate you know to implement things purely from a, a geopolitical point of view, right? It's still a, a climate focused lending program. So, but I, I I've been optimistic. I've been watching. U.S. politics for for this for a long time, and under Trump, you know, there were some things, you know, moves made. You know, um, Simon Moore is a benchmark, et cetera. You know, speaking in, in front of uh, committees, et cetera. So there has been a whole of government kind of approach, but like Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, which we've done a bunch of videos about, have really kind of kickstarted it and. 
you know, I don't know. Next year is an election year. Going back to our thought that like Q3, Q4 into Q1, you know, could be a, a good time for lithium equities. I think that's right, but it, it, it it's going to be after that. You know, there could be some you know political U.S. political volatility as a result of the election year. Like depending on what's said, uh, I think it, this is. It's not reversible, the, the you know the, the the trend toward EVs, but you know the fire and support that that's been given by the U.S. government to this may be less, you know, in time. Canada seems to be following. I'm not following it in super detailed. Again, Ernie, you may have some some thoughts there. And, and Europe, you know, speaks a lot, but you know they 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 haven't shown a lot of money. Although I think. Uh, I think a graphite project just got like an EIB loan. So I, I think there is government does need to support and and is in fits and starts, but they it, it's bipartisan. The fear of reliance on on China, you know, and, and where, but they don't like mining. So like, are Americans going to finance stuff in Africa? You know, maybe selectively. In other places, maybe selectively. Ernie, you have any thoughts, further thoughts on, on that from a kind of U.S. Or, or Canada government supports perspective? Uh, yeah, so maybe just uh, had a quick thought on, on the Africa comment. Yeah, I, th- I think we are seeing, I guess, new resources, but I would say while they're hard rock, not all of them are spodumene. So th- th- I think that you are seeing a lot of resources more on the penalite and the penalite side. Uh, in Africa, and obviously they have different supply chains. There's not as the, the converter market is not as deep, and there's also different waste uh, and ESD issues coming out of that. So uh, I agree with Ron that it likely takes uh, a lot longer to bring some of those uh, assets into production, if, um, if, if if ever. And then, yeah, as far as uh, overall investment support and, and, and government support for the sector, um, I, I think. Regardless of kind of uh, the next administration, I think there's um, and kind of the potential for the Inflation Reduction Act to see changes or or not. Uh, you are already seeing kind of big deflation across um, EV manufacturers. I think what GM, Volkswagen, Tesla, they all want to have a $25,000 EV. So you are seeing that irrespective of subsidies, you're seeing the trend towards uh, lower cars. Uh, another kind of big I think uh, item that could be momentum, a uh, big momentum wave for policy support in the U.S. Uh, would be that all of the kind of key major battery plants, cathode plants, et cetera, they all happen to be in the south, in the southeast. Uh, so they're typically kind of uh, more red leaning states. So I think you could have a lot of um, support uh, coming out of the, uh, the this region. And as far as uh, Canada, you are seeing uh, tax credits. Uh, put in place for kind of smart um, uh, manufacturing going into uh, the electric vehicle uh, era. You are seeing big government support for some of these latest uh, battery plants. Uh, so Volkswagen is building their 90 gigawatt hour facility at St. Thomas in Ontario. Uh, Stellantis is also looking to build up their uh, battery plant uh, in Canada. So overall, I think North America is going to be a big winner for the next decade, if, if not two. We, we saw the big gigafactory announced in Nuevo León in, in Mexico. So, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're very bullish on, on North America, and I think uh, they'll all be winners um, as these supply chains continue to uh, proliferate and, uh, and regionalize. Okay. I want to talk about uh, – I think there's a consensus here that hard rock is rising, and, and we talked a bit about Africa just now. I want to talk about U.S., Canada, Brazil, Australia as hard rock jurisdictions. But before I do that – 
Daniel, I wanted to ask you because like the last cycle, yes, and, and Joe's spoken about this and, and it's true that there, there was a lot of hard rock supply that kind of came on or like five mines came on in a, in a short period of time in a uh, in a market that wasn't that big. But, you know, in, in my interpretation, it was actually SQM being able to ramp up from like, I don't know, 36,000 to 48,000. And then they, they, they ramped up to like 150,000 tons. I don't know by, by now, right. Faster than, um, some of us thought was possible. I mean, maybe a bit slower than they said it would happen. Uh, but nevertheless, it's quite impressive, Daniel. We talked about this, that they went from like 50,000 to 150,000 within just a couple of years. And, you know, so why is that, right? You know, apart from their concession incentivized that, like when they renegotiated their concession in 2018, um, Corfo basically said, you have until 2030, you know, but you are able to produce, I think, up to 216,000, you know, tons. Um, and then they put in the royalty regime. So they, they, they incentivized them to ramp up production as fast as possible. And they've been moving in that direction. But now there's some... You know, so if they, if you could just talk to like, what's the, the current situation and, and the negotiations and the like, and, and not in so much detail, I'd encourage you to listen to Joe's podcast with you, Daniel, where you go into this in kind of greater detail. But, you know, is there some risk that SQM could, if, if the political um, dynamic was such to aggressively incentivize significant increase in production, could they do it, right? Um, or, or, or was this kind of like a one-off? This fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand tons, uh, based on how the, the existing pond structure, you know, and the like. Is SQM a risk to supply? Like all of a sudden, you know, massive increase in supply if the political backdrop enabled it. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I think SQM will be uh, ramping up production. Uh, SQM has announced in total two hundred and forty thousand tons. Uh, that they will probably achieve by, in terms of capacity, by by the end by by next year, 2024. So this means that SQM will have gone from 50 to 240 in, in a period of four or five years. Uh, why was SQM capable of doing this? Well, essentially because the the concentration stage, which is the more, uh, more, more, more the more uncertain one. Um, that SQM has an extremely good understanding of, of, the, of the hydrogeology of the Salar Atacama. And, um, and basically what SQM has been doing is uh, reducing the production of potash in favor of the production of lithium. So it's not that it doesn't have, it didn't need to have more evaporation ponds or more concentration area. It simply shifted the, the type of brine it is feeding into, into the ponds. Um, and, and, and that Produce this, uh, enable this, uh, this increase of production, and, and as I said, I think they're going to reach 240,000 tons. Uh, the challenge for SQM was really only to to build the refining capacity, which, which uh, since it's a modular system, the process is well understood, is of relatively low risk, and probably the biggest challenge there is is permitting, as, as Chile has has become very complex on the permitting side. Now, looking at Currently, what is happening with with the conversations with with Codelco with Corfo? I think there is a possibility that uh, that 
SQM and Codelco reach some type of agreement which could increase the production quota of SQM. SQM today is limited essentially by, by the total production quota it has to, through 2030. If that is quota is lifted, well, I, I think there is also space for incremental production uh, beyond the 240,000 tons. Let's look at the, the different context of that, though. First of all, SQM was stuck on 50,000 for three years. So if you take the front end of that, it was the, the big increase was really over seven years, not over five. And but even if they go to 240,000 in a couple of years, that's just one year's growth. So the ability of one company to kind of swamp the market is different. And I'm not taking anything away from SQM. I think what they've accomplished is impressive. But I guess the question I would ask Daniel to, to take it a step further is, what's the max, given the hydrology of Atacama, what's the max you think they could do in 2030 if they had no constraints other than the physical ones that exist in SLR? Uh, Joe, it, it is very responsible what I'm going to say because you really need to have a good uh, hydrogeological data and also understanding of the composition of the brines. But in our in our forecasting here, since we don't have that information, we are using numbers between three and three hundred and three hundred and fifty thousand in that hypothetical scenario that an agreement with Codelco is reached. With Codelco is reached, sorry. But I I, 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 I must be clear. I don't have any data supporting 300 or 350 besides my intuition of, 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 of thinking, well, potash production can be further reduced. But I think SQM will eventually disclose that. Huh? So it, it's, a matter, it's, uh, it's a matter of time on. Now, I totally agree with you. Whatever SQM can do is, is a drop in the pond when we look at the global context of, of lithium demand and, and how, how the world is going to supply all the lithium which is, uh, which is required. What for me is a given is that Albe, if Albemarle's forecast is correct of, the, of, 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 of estimating a global demand of 3.7 million tons by 2030, there's no way the world is going to be able to supply that lithium. Yeah, and SQM goes below 10%, even if they could go to 360 in that scenario in 2030. So yeah, exactly. the, the point being, we need everything SQM can do, and hopefully they do do it quickly. <laughs> okay, great. Again, before we go into this hard rock, and we're all bulls here, but Rodney, you've and, and Joe, you've uh, publicly kind of taken issue with some of the big banks, um, uh, you know, who published the research, uh, like Goldman, or uh, I don't know who the I think Goldman's been the, the the more aggressive bear of late. I don't know who else have been bears, but could you just like sum up what their fundamental, you know, arguments? are and and um and i'd say i mean howard if i if i were to to sum up the biggest beef when you look at someone like goldman's numbers their numbers are actually similar to mine the problem is they assume literally all supply is battery grade and that's just not possible especially new stuff coming online and we've seen how long it takes to ramp so in a market like if you're in a low growth sort of GDP related, uh, you know, business, that's one thing. But when you're in a, a, a business like lithium where the demand growth is compounding at 25% a year, 
being out by six months or a year and qualifying means a whole lot more of a shortage. So to my mind, that's, that's probably one of the biggest issues I have is, that, is, is the reality is the market is always behind in terms of commercial production, qualifications and everything going through. The other thing that uh, they have very low inventory numbers, which doesn't make sense because if people keep a static months of inventory and the market's growing at 25% a year, then it makes sense that you would hold more inventory across the entire supply chain to keep your levels up to a certain number of weeks or months. And then um, lastly is... Um, is, uh, you know, scrappage. There are a lot of new battery plants coming online and typically they tend to have higher production scrappage when they start. And again, that can't just do loop back into the supply chain as quickly as, as people think it can. So those are probably, uh, you know, my biggest beefs. And when, when you adjust for that, you often see that the swing is from Oversupply to undersupply. Joe, do you have anything to add? Well, no. I think I think Rodney hit all the key points on the head. the The comment I would make is that the they seem to underestimate the top of the cost curve as well. And if you look at Morgan Stanley, and when I did my presentation in April, in Singapore in April at Tribeca. That that was what my complaint was that Morgan Stanley shows a bigger supply gap than I do in 2030, but they have the price of lithium carbonate at less than 10,000 a ton. And that makes absolutely no sense, given what the cost curve is to get to that kind of supply. Yeah, Joe hit a, hit a great point there. So the other thing I picked up in the Goldman's was they are assuming in 2020, uh, in 2024 that Spodumin, I think, will be about $1,000 a ton. So it's going to go from four to one. And that's how the top end of the cost curve can drop down to the number they had it at. So if Spodumin doesn't drop by 75% from where we are now, then the numbers just just aren't possible. And the, and the other thing is, um, is lipidolite, um, we, we saw it give way at much higher prices than than where they're projecting the price. So I can't see how that, that would be the case. You know, if, if, if they stop producing at 25, how are they going to be doubling production in a, in a whatever, a, a $12,000 market? It, it, just not, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, if the converter cost curve goes down because spodge means somehow magically dropped to 1000 then what you're looking at is the lipidolite curve, which I think if you're going to take Goldman's amount of lipidolite in their forecast is closer to 30,000 a ton than it is to 15. And people can debate that. But I think what you just – the example you just gave bears witness to the fact that if they're exiting at that price level now, why is it going to be any different in two years? So lipidolite, um, Rodney, you said you, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have all the supply coming. And um, if the cost curve for lipidolite is 30000 you can't have lithium at 15000 right? And all that lipidolite supply come on because um, it just wouldn't make any money. But uh, Ron Mitchell, you were talking about 
you, you have a lot of experience selling into China, um, Talas, and, and I mean, what's your sense from an environmental point of view, you know, of what's happening lipidolite-wise? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Elephant in the room, Howard, no one's talking about it. And I'm quite frankly shocked by it because you're selling a material that's got, what, if you're lucky, 0.4% lithium. That means you're shipping, you know, 90, well, producing 99.6% waste. Um, and the problem with lapidolite, there's some radioactive isotopes in this material. When you react it with, with sulfuric acid, um, you know, it produces some really, really nasty elements. It's not like a spodumene conversion. You know, spodumene, it's proven, it's, it's in terms of the residue, it can be applied in a whole raft of downstream industries. These have been born and, and developed in China over over multiple decades. I'm talking about construction, the cement, the brick industries, where you know the residue. So effectively, the alumina silicate, which is slightly um, acidized, that material has a home, um, and and typically the converters can sell this material. It, look, it doesn't have a high value. It might be selling for you know somewhere around ten RMB, so a handful of dollars, um, but it has it has an end use. The problem with lipidolite conversion, it doesn't. And, you know, gone are the days in China where you could just, um, you know, act, you know, in a very undisciplined manner with regards to the environment. Things are changing. The emergence of the middle class in China, particularly during the COVID lockdown, has, has transformed that, that country. And, you know, we've got a team of probably one of the few lithium companies that's actually gone into China since it's reopened earlier this year. And that was a really serious conversation we had. Our team sort of um, uncovered was there's just mounds and mounds of this lipidolite residue lying around the place. And what to do with it? You can't landfill it. It doesn't have an end use. So where is that material going to end up? And Goldman forecasting, what, 440,000 tonnes on an LCE base of lipidolite production? Seriously? Do you know how much waste that is? Um, so... <laughs> A massive disconnect, and not only commercially, technically, and now environmentally. So, I would really encourage um, your listeners, Howard and, and, and Joe, to start asking these hard questions when it comes to lapidolite production, because, um, and as we've seen quite clearly, it just doesn't compete. Pricing moves sort of below thirty, thirty-five thousand US a ton on the chemical side. Lapidolite's out of the market. A question, who is buying lipidolite um, chemicals or, or, or chemicals made from lipidolite? I mean, I'm assuming CATL is a, is a major purchaser, but um, does anyone know who, who, who they are and, and which batteries, um, you know, who are the end consumers of that, right? Like, so mm. there's a question mark, like, is, um, is Tesla buying CATL batteries, you know, that are using environmentally unfriendly lipidolite does anybody know i would say unlikely if they're doing their due diligence as 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 all major tier one buyers should be doing um they'd be going right back to the mine and the origination of the lithium molecule and i'd say it's same for the japanese and the koreans <laughs> so my suspicion would it you know possibly see a tell but a handful of sort of the the, the lower tiered um, Chinese battery entities would would most likely be using that material. And and uh, Howard, if I could uh, on on the comment of maybe some of the viewpoints from from the sell side community, I think 
they may be also underestimating the the demand side of, of for now. And I think the Tesla and BYD numbers are a great example of just, uh, I guess, how resilient demand has been despite kind of the macroeconomic uncertainty. And I think some of the the data out of, out of China has also made it uh, harder to realize that the auto sector is still quite robust. Uh, so if you kind of look underneath the, the, the kind of production and sales numbers, in May, for example, the property sector was down 15%, whereas auto was up 25%. But because property is just such a larger share of the economy, it, it, it tends to obfuscate uh, some of the data on, the, on a macro basis coming out of China. But looking at kind of year-to-date sales trends, China's still running up 40% plus year-to-date. And I think some of the EV forecasts now, uh, some of the sell side has up 15, up 20 for, for 2023. So uh, I think some of the demand numbers I've seen uh, have been on the lower side, especially if you mark to market, uh, the likely demand is likely to beat some of the expectations out there. Obviously, we still have the second half of the year still to go. But uh, to our earlier point, the second half of the year is usually the strongest anyways from an EV seasonality perspective. So I think there are some additional tailwinds. And um, I think for one of the banks I was looking at that they have 21% demand growth, uh, and they have supply growth at 31%. So even if you were just to mark to market to what demand's been doing, that essentially takes away all of their surplus. So uh, I think um, demand upgrades over the next three to six months could also be a, bi- uh, a big catalyst to, uh, I guess, um, look at the supply-demand picture for some, for, for some of the banks and institutions out there. So there seems to be a consensus that hard rock is is a place to be, uh, will, or that will continue. We talked about Africa. So there's the U.S., there's Canada, there's Brazil, you know, and there's Australia. And the U.S. is quite, when I say hard rock, I'm talking about like spodumene, you know. And let's let's keep it to I guess to spodumene. Uh, the U.S. is really um, I, don't, I don't know. It's Kings Mountain, you know, Albemarle. It's Piedmont. I know there's some exploration plays in, in kind of the Dakotas that are. I don't know too much about. It. I don't want to talk too much, you know, in that now. But uh, you know, Canada certainly has seen a lot of what we're calling these crocodile Dundee Australians, um, and there have been some very significant discoveries and good price performance. And you know, Ford just did a deal with Namaska and. Livent is merging with Allchem, so there's a lot happening in, in Canada, but Brazil has definitely you know kind of come back, come uh, to the fore you know as well, and and don't forget Australia and and Ron, you just made an investment in Australia, you know, and then this I forget the name of the company, Develop Global that you just said, uh, Ernie together with Minres, I guess is taking over you know essential minerals. So if we could just all of you chime in, you know, what your thoughts are on um, each of these geographies. Uh, you know, Joe, I know you've been relatively bearish on Canada for some time. I don't know your thoughts today, but, you know, we have a, a Siona and Piedmont are producing, you know, we'll have first kind of shipment and there are real investments being made there. Uh, but then on the flip side, you have Brazil and Sigma. I, I want to actually like, is Sigma's like battery grade lithium concentrate, you know, um, special, special relative to the spodumene that's in Canada, the U.S., and Australia? Battery grade happens at chemical conversion. That's just a fact. You can have better quality spodumene, but battery quality chemicals are a function of the chemical conversion process. So that that's my... 
statement on that. I'm not going to debate. <laughs> I'm not going to debate my friend Anna on that, but uh, uh, other people can weigh in as well. Uh, I'm, I'm not a bear on Canada, but I think Canada's record speaks for itself. And I think there's a lot of spodumene there. And I think we're living in a different world. Siona was a dog that doesn't hunt in the old pricing uh, world we lived in not too long ago. And now, it, you know, it's fine. But that doesn't mean that Quebec is going to act any faster than it has in the past. That's what I think the, the real question mark is. I actually... I'm I'm invested in Patriot. Um, I'm invested in green technology metals. I I believe the Aussies are going to be the key to unlocking what happens in Canada going forward. But I think it's going to take longer than people think, uh, just because uh, that's lithium. So uh, yeah, I I don't I don't want to accept the mantle of a of a Canada bear. The other thing I would say on on North American general is. Jigger's got a lot of money to lend, but there has not been one dime that has passed to a resource project in North America. Yeah, Ioneer's going to get one with a conditional. We all believe Thacker Pass will get one, but we're spending or allocating billions to battery capacity. And conversion's one thing, but you can't convert what you don't have. And that that's a big issue. And we'll we'll see how the politics play out on that. But North America is going to find itself continuing behind the curve, and they may have to they may they may have to have to depend on liquid spodumene from South America when it's all said and done. That sounds good, <laughs> um, Ernie. Do you want to? Your your you have a royalty on Sigma, so and. Um, I, I I don't want to debate Anna or just I, I want to understand right because the, the green lithium is, is there something special about Sigma's spodumene that's that warrants a premium compared to you know um, uh, it, um, Ron's global lithium which is going to use flotation right is there any reason to you know uh, you know or, or is Brazil risk different than Australia risk I mean like what is um, it's been very well marketed, and I think she, she's terrific. And I want Sigma to go at a very high price. Just, just, a, just an aside. I mean, we heard some rumors. If any of you guys care to share any rumors you heard at past markets, but I don't know how substantiated this is. But um, I heard things about like Volkswagen and Rio Tinto, you know, maybe making a bid, um, and which which could make sense to me. Uh, I thought Volley might be a good foray to kind of get into lithium, you know, given it's, it's Brazil, but, you know, Volkswagen has talked about hard rock for a long time and they've been very slow relative to kind of like GM and Tesla and, and Ford and actually doing anything. But yeah, Ernie, do you have any thoughts on quality of spodumene, I mean, your DMS versus flotation, you know, does it, is there anything particularly greener, more sustainable, therefore warranting some sort of premium, you know, for that, or is that l largely, you know, good marketing? 
Uh, well, I think Joe, I think, had a good point that uh, a lot of kind of the battery grade specification and conversion happens at, at, at the converting site. But I think Sigma does have a lot of special attributes that make it uh, warranting a premium price, which we've seen with the 9% tied to, to lithium hydroxide. Uh, the fact that they're being able to sell the tailings and kind of uh, reduce the environmental footprint there, I think, speaks to the, the high quality ESG effort that Anna and her team are, are moving forward with. I was also with Anna at, at COP27 last year in Egypt, and they had a great presentation and kind of um, key panelists from some of the mayors uh, in, in the towns. And they've done a lot of microcredit to uh, some of the women in, in, in the community uh, during COVID. They were some of the key, uh, one of the few companies in the region that were actually supplying food on, 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 on a daily basis. So I think from an overall ESG standpoint, I would say Sigma's definitely probably the leader in, um, in, in, in the spodumene space. But uh, I would agree with Joe is that as far as kind of the uh, battery grade, that, that's usually done at the converting site. And, uh, and as far as once you get into a saleable spodumene concentrate, I think the converter essentially uh, takes it from there. But we uh, to the broader Brazil question, uh, we're incredibly bullish on Brazil. Uh, as you said, we have a 1% royalty on Sigma. We just did an investment with Atlas Lithium, a $20 million investment for a 3% royalty there. And if you kind of just add up all of the resources that have been announced to date between uh, Sigma, uh, CBL, AMG, Lithium Ionic, uh, Latin Resources, you're already at 200 million tons, uh, if not more, of mineral resources in Brazil. And there's a lot more exploration uh, occurring on site. So I, I think uh, Brazil is going to be a very, very large player in the spodumene market. Uh, the speed to market is also incredibly impressive. The, the fact that you can get get to drilling within a few months is is uh, kind of eye opening. So I would say, uh, yeah, Brazil is going to be one of the key regions likely to supply kind of the the, the Amer- uh, North American and the European market, uh, not to mention the Asian market as well. But I think it's going to be a big player going forward. How do you view Brazil versus Canada? I know you, you've invested in Winsome and a few of the others, but what are the, I mean, there's, it's harder to drill in Canada, right? You got to do it by helicopter, you know, there's some infrastructure concerns, considerations, but how would you view Canada versus Brazil versus Australia? Uh, yeah, good question. As far as Brazil, I think the key things that we've noticed is that all of these projects or the majority of these projects uh, tend to be uh, coarse-grained, uh, higher-grade assets. Uh, so, the, the, and the key kind of differentiating factor we've seen for Brazilian projects uh, tends to be kind of just depth of of of, of the resource. But uh, pretty much all of them are coarse-grained and uh, high-grade. Uh, when you look at some of the Quebec projects, it's probably a lot more uh, variety. Uh, some do tend to be on the finer grain side. Some of them are coarse-grained, and you see mineralization kind of across the the, the board. So. I would say there's a whole host of varieties in in in, in the Quebec uh, landscape. So I would say the due diligence is, is important in any uh, event, but I would say especially in Quebec, not all of the deposits uh, are are created equal. I think uh, or we're very excited about our uh, royalty on the Winsome Medina uh, the deposit. I think uh, Canaccord this morning uh, suggested that it could have a 40 million ton resource, uh, according to 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 Reg Spencer there. So uh, I would say yeah, that there's a lot more. Variety as far as uh, grades, uh, coarseness versus fines, uh, depth uh, in uh, in Quebec, and to your point, the infrastructure and the ability to work in, in some of these projects 
is perhaps more limited to certain seasons, whereas Brazil, you can pretty much work uh, year round and uh, and make a lot of progress. So you think supply from Brazil is going to come on faster than from Canada? Uh, I think it's more uh, project by project uh, dependent. I would say on average, I would say uh, yes, uh, just given that in, in, in some cases, Brazil, you can permit a project anywhere from one to three years. Uh, I think that does tend to be slightly faster uh, than Quebec. But overall, I think it's going to be very uh, asset dependent. And uh, some of them are more advanced than others, like the Mobland asset, which we have a royalty on. Uh, the DFS is coming out this year. So it's definitely more on the advanced side. But yeah, I would say on, on, on average, Brazil is uh, in a, uh, a jurisdiction where things can happen uh, quite fast. Okay, and, and Ron, you just made, uh, again, an acquisition in Australia, unlike your Australian peers who have been all over Canada, um, and you work for Talazin. So to, to the two comments of, like, is Sigma's green lithium, you know, mm-hmm. greener than, you know, green bushes, you know, or mana or a marble bar, uh, that's one question. And then secondly, you know, there there is... And, and um, Joe has had this on the, uh, the podcast, you know, the, 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 the thought of peak spodumene in Australia or, or what, what yeah. can Australia do? Yep. You have the Australians kind of coming out of Australia into other jurisdictions because there's a, a sense that it may be, you know, picked over. Mm. Um, you know, so on those two comments, what, what, what do you yeah. think yeah. Sense of Australia? I guess, yeah, look, well, naturally, the big advantage of Australia, of course, is we've done it before, we've got the runs on the board, um, the infrastructure's here, and most importantly, um, and no one's really talked about it, but we've got a market on our doorstep. So it's one thing having a spodumene raw material asset and, and, and being able to deliver that to market, but, you know, whether you like it or not, China is where all the converting is taking place and, and will be for, for, for the foreseeable future. And, yes, I acknowledge there's conversion capacity being constructed in other jurisdictions. But, you know, for the next two years, it's a China story, whether you like it or not. So that for us is really appealing. Um, we know China. We can get our material into China within two weeks. Uh, vessels leaving Mayport, Western Australia into Mayport, China for conversion. We've seen the Chinese very, very active in this space. Clearly, uh, most Australian producers are looking for greater global diversification in terms of that conversion piece, and that will come, but it won't happen overnight. And I know through my own experiences, you know, working at Tianchi and um, the Quinana plant, and we've heard, you know, public information around the progress at Kemerton. I mean, these complex lithium hydroxide conversion plants, that, that is a real bottleneck. And that's where um, I think, again, the market's probably overestimating how quickly some of these plants can fire up and be constructed. So big challenge, chicken or the egg, really, in, in the Americas at the moment. You can build all, all the uh, spodium and beneficiation you like, but where are you going to send it? So that for us is really appealing. We, we like Western Australia because we've got a massive market on our doorstep and one that we can profit from. And monetize in terms of um, our assets. Uh, Ron, if you allow me to jump in on this, uh, I would say the other thing which Australia has is the know-how. Um, mm. Spodiumine, concentrating spodiumine, that know-how is in Australia. The whole ecosystem around it in terms of consulting firm, consultants, engineering firms, mining engineers uh, specialized on this with experience, practical experience. That's in Australia nowhere else yet 
So, so I mean, that also makes Australia uh, probably also a, a yeah a more likely jurisdiction to, to be successful in 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 in, in deploying projects. Mm-hmm. It's a good point, Daniel, and we haven't talked about it, but the West Farmers, you know, covalent, right, is SQM, and then SQM followed that with an investment in Azure, right? You know, so SQM hasn't gone anywhere but Australia for their hard rock. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and Albemarle appears to be doing the same, although, yeah, they, they've not gone into Canada, they've not gone to Brazil. Um, yeah, Albemarle, it's, it's very interesting. Why hasn't SQM or Albemarle, you know, put in a bid for Sigma or been involved in anything else in Brazil? I know for a fact that they're talking aggressively to them from our fast markets conversation, you know, all, all the all, all the um, the Brazilian ones. I don't get a sense. I mean, Livent's very obviously active in, in Canada, but uh, we haven't seen SQM or Albemarle show up there in any uh, in, anywhere. So... Yeah, Australia definitely has the infrastructure, definitely has the close proximity to where the market is today. And yeah, it just it's quite amazing. You know, Albemarle has bid three and a half billion dollars for Liontown. That's like fifteen percent of its market cap in cash. <laughs> Ernie, what do you think about that? Like just when you were at Tide Point, you you were a big shareholder in SQM and Albemarle. And uh, back in those days, you know, Albemarle was like the lithium proxy. The price just kept going up and up and up. And like Albemarle today is only like 26, 27 billion market cap. The valuation, you've, you've seen a very significant derating in in multiple, but the profitability is coming through. The margins have never been higher. The growth prospects have never been, you know, more real. Why do you think valuations are so low? Not just for Albemarle, but like, or, or there's a dichotomy, but that like that they're willing to pay three and a half billion dollars in cash when their own equity valuation, you know, based on EV to EBITDA is, is, is lower than it's, it's been, I think, in ever. Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I think uh, we were speaking to it earlier, but uh, Albemarle's demand projections are for 3.7 million tons from 2030. I think the probably highest or one of the higher prognostications um, in, in, in the space. And that's probably a function of they probably have one of the best viewpoints as far as talking to everyone, visibility out there. So I think one, given that they are have much higher demand expectations, probably it helps them have the visibility to underwrite uh, such an investment. I think the other key aspect is that Albemarle has tended to prefer assets of, of extremely large scale, especially if we think back to their Wajin acquisition when they made it, when we were going into a bit of a down cycle. But now, as, as we've seen, uh, it's, it's probably uh, worked out over a longer term horizon. So I would say it's kind of similar framework uh, that uh, no question that Kathleen Valley is a very large scale asset that is going to likely be very important. And to our earlier discussions on WA being a top mining jurisdictions, I think from a long term kind of perpetual ownership standpoint, I think it, it, uh, it, it, it's a very attractive asset. And uh, I think some of the uh, banks were saying that the equity markets right now are underwriting uh, lithium stocks with a spodumine, long-term spodumine price of around $1,500 to $1,800 a ton. So you are starting to see kind of a dislocation. So to the extent that we stay 
higher for longer, which I think many of us on the on, on this uh, Twitter space um, ascribe to. Uh, you'll you likely see maybe some of the valuations in, improve given that uh, yeah the, the the long-term discounted price is is, is still uh, a fraction of the of the current market dynamics. I want to just end on you know just you know Rodney had a question here is how, how accurate is the futures curve? The, the, the CME has a flat curve around fifty-eight thousand dollars a kilo um, out to twenty twenty. A ton. Or well, fifty-eight. Yeah, fifty-eight. Fifty-eight thousand dollars a ton. Um, what do you guys think like is going to happen? You know, to price in the next you know three, six, you know, twelve months. Uh, based on what your, yeah, uh, supply, just what you're seeing in the market, demand-wise, you know, constraints-wise, because commodity equities follow commodity prices. Like I said, I've heard some traders, you know, they're quite bullish into the Q3, Q4 timeframe. But curious, uh, I, or, or to, to, to say another thing, I remember Daniel and Ernie. I saw you, I think, in 2019 at the. LME in London, you know, and then I saw Daniel, you know, in December um, at the Deutsche Conference and, you know, prices were like, you know, I don't know, in, in the single digits, the single thousands, but someone asked where would price be the next year and everyone was bearish, uh, except you, Ernie, um, at the LME. I remember like, oh, no, I'll, I'll make a bet that it'll be higher. <laughs> Most people thought it would be flat or lower from the, the 10,000. So I'm going to ask a similar question to that. Where are we actually today? I haven't actually checked, and, and where do you think we'll be? Uh, start with you, um, Daniel. I think the market will be tight with eventually, uh, or maybe almost likely towards 25, even with a significant deficit of lithium. And, and, and for this reason, I, prices will be above marginal cost of production, which is this $30, $35 you have of lipidolites in China. And, and if you, if I would have to bet, I think the next two years, so 23 and 24, we'll probably see prices in the ranges of $40, $50. Uh, but then in 25 and 26, I would see those prices uh, going slightly higher. Now, this is only sentiment. Uh, there's nobody that I know who can tell you the equilibrium price is 45, 52, or, or, or 69, or even 80 or 100. Um, the, the general tightness, I think, will be there, and, and where that price ends up settling will be somewhere where the, the highest uh, uh, willing to pay uh, buyer will be, be, will be that, that the, the level he will set. Um, but in general, I, I see the market tight and tighter, getting tighter towards 25, 26. Okay, Rodney. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's a very difficult uh, thing to call to exactness. I agree uh, with Daniel. I think that um, you know the part of the problem that we also see is that produce chemical producers in China, when the price is running up, they hold back volumes, and when the price is running down, they dump. So you get these sort of more aggressive swings, especially from balance sheet light players that are over there. So, you know, the, the futures curve is, is 58 out to mid-2025, which is an interesting one. It's mostly it goes up from now and then kind of stays flat. 
I think, yeah, around, you know, probably around um, the 40 to 55 range until we, uh, you know, we see a, a bigger a shortage if the market pushes. But, uh, you know, as we've seen from this year, the mid and the downstream can play games uh, in terms of how much inventory they hold and, and how they sort of play it along. But projects always have a, a way of disappointing in terms of timelines. So uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I'd, I don't know if that's a cop-out, but I, I'd say probably the, slightly higher than Daniel is possible. Um, so maybe widen that band a bit until, until mid-decade. Mid Okay, and Ron Mitchell. I mean, you, at Talisman, you must have been doing this uh, analysis all the time. I'm sure yeah. you still those at Global Lithium. That's right. I've still got my own personal S and D model that I interrogate on a quarterly basis. Howard. Yeah. Look, I obviously am involved with the LME as well, and um, a lot of the futures and, and and lithium traders. And the view out to Q4 next year is sort of yeah, as 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 Rodney was saying, sort of high fifties. On an LCE basis, so that puts spodumene somewhere between four and five thousand a ton USD on an FOB basis. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think prices are going sort of south of thirty anytime soon. So it'll probably be sitting in that range. Longer term, look, I, I obviously see prices moderating, but um, I can't see LCE prices coming below sort of twenty-five to thirty-five on a long-term average basis, and that. That really positions Spodumane on, on a long-term average of about 2,500 a ton based on my internal uh, reckoning um, and analysis on, on, on a best-case scenario around the supply side. And I'm, I'm a realist. So um, stronger for longer as an overall sentiment. All right. So, Ernie, we'll just end on you. Do you think the market uh, are, are pricing lithium equities um, with, uh, you know, an expectation of $50,000 a ton uh, with a, a floor of uh, maybe twenty five to 30 long term? Uh, I don't. I think uh, yes, some of the mark-to-market accounting I was seeing that we were doing and also by published by other banks and institutions, I think the market was pricing in somewhere around 1500 to $1,800 a ton mean long term and kind of low twenties for carbonate. So uh, I think to the extent that we stay higher for longer, even just in 2023, could be a, a catalyst kind of for our performance in in the sector. Uh, and yeah, I, I would probably agree with Rodney and I guess the, the whole the whole panel that uh, I do see prices kind of staying in the maybe. Forty to fifty thousand uh, kind of uh, range uh, for the next uh, for the next couple of years, and at that point, then uh, obviously visibility is, is not is not as robust. But I, I, I am uh, I do subscribe to that tighter for longer uh, narrative. And I want to speak for Joe Lowry, but I, I know his price forecasts are are not too dissimilar from what everybody here has. Has spoken, so we're, we're all bulls, but we're all um, experienced bulls. Like the the analysts at the investment banks that are have much bigger voices. I always say, like little lithium, um, you know, you know, the punches above its weight. You know, with, with having a lot of banks, you know, big mouths. You know, for little lithium, without like a lot of great analysis, you know, behind it. Uh, but it, it spooks the market. And just kind of like Tesla, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt of Tesla for a very long period of time. Um, but, you know, then it, it went parabolic or it, 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 the market is not pricing in um, what the consensus of very, you know, five 
people who have been doing this for a very long time, you know, are saying. So anyone listening here, none of this is financial advice, but um, if lithium equities are at, at deeply discounted valuations relative to the past and prices are going to be a lot higher you know, in the near term and the medium term than they have in the past and the potential of the producers to make software-like margins like you're seeing at Pilbara, you know, for many more companies um, – is you know is great and M and A is going to have to continue. There's not that many very advanced projects uh, we could point to. Um, Ron Mitchell and, and, and Rodney have collectively kind of put together. There's only 14 George resources, you know, in in Australia. You know, there are George resources in some other places, but um, there's going to be a lot of M and A. Uh, there's a lot of meetings that we talked about at the Fast Markets Conference. You know, intra lithium. And also outside of lithium, whether it be oil companies, whether it be auto OEMs. So uh, the first half, uh, I think I tweeted a day or two ago because this article in the New York Times about um, you know lithium scarcity is attracting um, you know a Fordlandia uh, you know back to the early 2020s in the Model T, where Ford bought rubber plantations and iron mines. You're starting to see that with GM and Lithium Americas, you know, LG and, and Piedmont, you know, and, and there's going to be there's more Ford, you know, with Namaska and, and there's more. So just it's my my prediction that you're going to see a lot more of that. And, you know, I uh, always hearken back to the the the, the, um, <coughs> the super cycle <coughs> back in in, in the 2000s. Um, and I remember that Rio Tinto bought Alcan at a very high price, and they, they've had PTSD since then. Um, that's why you've seen such tepid behavior from the Rios and the BHPs of the world. But you know, Rio bought Alcan for thirty-five billion dollars. I could see you know a world in which like Rio Tinto buys Albemarle, you know, in three or four years' time, you know, for a hundred billion dollars, and that that's kind of like the the. the the, the top of the market kind of signal that that I'm looking for. But in the meantime, the next few years, I think you're, there's a lot of opportunity on the scoreboard. But to Rodney's point, you know, maybe 25% of them will succeed. So there's a lot of stocks that are down a lot, you know, on the scoreboard, and, and that will continue over the next, you know, number of years. So be selective. Be careful who you listen to. I think Rodney and I are, are very focused on creating content with high integrity, high quality people representing good assets. And, you know, I think this group of people is probably a lot smarter and, and making a lot more accurate analysis than a lot of the bigger banks who have bigger voices. So thanks for following us. Thanks for listening in. Thanks again to uh, Rod Mitchell, Rodney, Daniel Jimenez, Joe Lowry, and Ernie Ortiz. Take care, guys. Happy 4th Declaration of Independence. <laughs>